following teaching is brought to you by Calvary Bible Church in Burbank, California. We trust that this recording will be a benefit to you and will be a challenge to your Christian faith and walk. For more information about Calvary Bible Church, see our website at calvarybiblechurch.org or call us at 818-556-4840. Some of you may have noticed I'm limping a little bit here. I injured my ankle this week. Um... And I, I think I injured it by putting my foot in my mouth. Because uh, when I came up with the title of today's message, I totally forgot what day it was today. <laughs> Happy Mother's Day! Um, I'm so sorry, ladies. <laughs> There's no connection at all to the message. This is uh, this is a... St- something that the people in Micah's day were crying out for. So there's no link between this title and Mother's Day. So please uh, forgive me for that. Um, Give me a second here to pull my foot out of my mouth now. Um, I want to begin our time with a question. When when I say Jimmy Stewart and Christmas, what comes to your mind? Yes, The Wonderful Life, right? A movie made in 1946 has become one of the classic heartwarming tales that was shown every Christmas. In fact, the American Film Institute had rated it the 20 best, 20th best movie of all time. And uh, it's full of wonderful characters, right? I mean, George Bailey, his wife Mary, Uncle Billy, and then, of course, who can forget the angel Clarence, right? Clarence Oddbody, actually, was his last name. Clarence. Um, it's a great story. But the, in addition to those characters, there's also the villain. The villain, Mr. Remember his name? Henry Potter. Henry Potter, right? He was a bad dude. Uh, He would use people and use their indebtedness to him to control them and to uh, acquire acquire their property and things like that. The height of his evil came in the movie. If you remember when Uncle Billy had taken the money to the bank to deposit for their uh, loan and construction business, and he lost it. Remember, he misplaced it, and uh, Potter took that money. And uh, then he watched Uncle Billy, you know, he went to the next room and peered through the door and gleefully watched as Uncle Billy was frantic trying to find that money that he had misplaced. As a result, their business would have to declare bankruptcy. Potter was the quintessential evil land baron. He was driven by a greedy heart which loved money and power. And there have been many Mr. Potters in history. And Israel was no stranger to them as well. In Micah's day, it was full also of land barons who used unscrupulous means in order to acquire land, especially of those who were less fortunate. And as we approach the second chapter of Micah, that is the particular sin that Micah focuses his attention on, this sin of land grabbing. And so if you would please turn to Micah 2, and as well as please stand in honor of God's word as I read from this chapter. Here Micah says, Woe to those who scheme iniquity, who work out evil on their beds. When morning comes, they do it, for it is in the power of their hands. They covet fields and then seize them, and rob houses and take them away. They rob a man in his house, a a man in his inheritance. Therefore, thus says the Lord, Behold, I am planning against this family a calamity from which you cannot remove your necks, and you will not walk haughtily, for it will be an evil time. On that day they will take up against you a proverb and lament a bitter lamentation, saying, We are completely destroyed. 
He exchanges the portion of my people, how he removes it from me. To the apostate, he apportions our fields. Therefore, you will have no one stretching a measuring line for you by lot in the assembly of the Lord. Do not speak out, they speak out, but they will not speak out concerning these things, and so reproaches will not be turned back. Is it being said, O house of Jacob, is the spirit of the Lord impatient? Are these his doings? Do not my words do good to the one walking uprightly? Recently, my people have arisen as an enemy. You strip off the robe, strip the robe off the garment from unsuspecting passersby, from those returned from war. The women of my people you evict, each one from her pleasant house. From her children you take my splendor forever. Arise and go, for this is no place of rest because of the uncleanness that brings on destruction, a painful destruction. If a man walking after wind and falsehood had told lies, saying, I will speak to you concerning wine and liquor, he would be spokesman to this people. I will assuredly assemble all of you, Jacob. I will surely gather the remnant of Israel. I will put them together like sheep in the fold, like a flock in the midst of its pasture. They will be noisy with men. The breaker goes up before them. They break out, pass through the gate, and go out by it. So their king goes on before them, and the Lord at their head. That's the Lord to bless His Word. Father, again, we come before You with much gratitude. Thankful, Lord, for so many things. Thankful, Lord, for the mothers you have given us. Thankful, Lord, for the many blessings that you have bestowed on us, even some of them through trials. Lord, we are grateful for your work in our lives. We are grateful most of all for your Son, in whom we have forgiveness. We pray, Lord, that our time together now as we look to your Word, that you would give us a hunger for it, a desire to know you through it, and wanting to apply it to honor Jesus. And it is in His name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Well, if you'll recall, the prophet uh, Micah came from a small rural town in western Judah. Uh, probably grew up on a farm. And he prophesied both to the northern and southern kingdoms. The northern ten tribes as well as the southern tribes of Israel. He prophesied around the tail end of Hosea's ministry. And he was also contemporary with the prophet Isaiah. And the first message that Micah records is given here in Micah's chapters 1 and 2. And we looked at chapter 1 last week, which was Micah's Micah's declaration of God's judgment upon the people because of their sins against the Lord. And then here in chapter 2, Micah turns his attention in describing God's judgment upon the people because of their sin against one another. Our first point this morning, we'll be looking at Micah's confrontation in verses 1 to 5. And the second point will be in verses 6 to 11, how the people respond to that confrontation. So let's first consider in verses 1 through 5, the cruelty of their coveting, the cruelty of coveting. Micah begins the second part of his message. What's the first word there? And it's not like, whoa, dude, right? It is, whoa, to you, right? It was normally used to begin a funeral dirge. But here, as well as in the many times we've seen it in the prophets, they often use it to begin a message that is going to include condemnation and judgment. And those upon whom Micah declares this woe are described in verses 1 and 2. They are first described as schemers of iniquity. And Micah notes there that, you know, when these guys put their head on their pillow, rather than counting sheep, they were plotting, they were planning. They were coming up with these weak, wicked schemes while on their bed. And then he says, when morning comes, 
And that word for morning there is the idea of at the crack of dawn. When the first morning light appears, these guys leap up, excited to carry out the wicked plan that they had come up with. But just what is the particular evil they were plotting? Well, that's what Micah describes in verse 2 as he moves from the general to the specific. And there he describes that these people are scheming to acquire the property of others. And these are not going to be innocent real estate transactions that will come about. Notice what he says in verse 2. They covet their fields. They seize others' fields. They take others' houses. They rob a man of his house and his inheritance. What's described here is the sin of land grabbing, of using any and every means possible in order to get other people's land. He uses the word here, word here rob, which is the, has the idea of to oppress or to exploit or to take some advantage of someone in a business transaction. It was used quite often in Amos and also Hosea as it was going on for many, many years throughout Israel and Judah. Amos had addressed these folks in Amos 5.11 where he said there, You impose heavy rent on the poor and exact a tribute of grain from them. I know your transgressions are many and your sins are great. You who distress the righteous and accept bribes and turn aside the poor in the gate. You see, essentially, these people were gaming the system. What they were doing is they would bilk the innocent out of their land by charging these exorbitant interest rates. Or they would prey upon those who were struggling to pay off their debts and find ways to seize their property. And to do all of this behavior and this activity, they would pay off judges or city officials in order to legalize being able to take people's land like that. Their motto was, might makes right. I have the power to get what I want, and so I'm going to take it. And so we have in the land of Israel these Mr. Potters everywhere who were exploiting the hardship of others for their own selfish gain. And Micah's contemporary, Isaiah, condemned this as well. As he said in Isaiah 5.8, Woe to those who add house to house and join field to field, until there is no more room so that you have to live alone in the midst of the land. Isaiah is talking about there these people who are just hungry to acquire more and more property, to expand their land, to expand their holdings, all at the expense of others. King Ahab was the poster child of this sin. If you remember in 1 Kings 21 where it describes as Ahab was looking out from his palace and he sees this beautiful vineyard and he says, I really want that. So remember, he goes and he he goes to the owner of the vineyard and says, I want to acquire this land from you. And the owner, his name was Naboth, said, no, no, I'm not going to I'm not going to sell it to you. So Ahab, he goes home, right? And he's whining about it to his wife, Jezebel. You know, he wouldn't sell it to me. (laughs) Jezebel says, I'll take care of it. And we know what that means. So she gathers up a couple of scoundrels and they falsely accuse Naboth of, of blasphemy. Naboth is stoned, his sons are killed as well, and so Ahab then is gleefully able to possess the land of Naboth. It was a despicable abuse of power. And that terrible injustice that Ahab committed, about probably a hundred and something years before Micah, was not unnoticed by God. That's when he sent the prophet Elijah to declare judgment upon the house of Ahab. And here in Micah's day, that's exactly what happens as well as God sends Micah, the prophet, to the people to declare judgment upon them for their land-grabbing ways. Before we look at the judgment, which is shown here in verses 3 to 5, I want you to look at the last line of verse 2. Notice it says there that these oppressors robbed a man, not just of his land, but of his what? 
his inheritance. And that's an important statement that God is making here because he's showing us that we're not just dealing with the issue of the rich taking advantage of the poor. This is also a theological issue. Because what was happening here is these oppressors had forgotten who really owns the land. Whose land it really was. God said in Leviticus 25, 23, The land, moreover, shall not be sold permanently, for the land is mine. But you are but aliens and sojourners with me. See, God said, this is my land. You can't just do with it what you want, and especially not the way you're doing it. It's the same here. This is all God's land. This is God's planet, isn't it? Isn't it? He owns it, right? And it is for him to decide to whom he will give, to how he will parcel out. And that's what he did in Israel's day, remember? When the people entered the land with Joshua, and they parceled out each of the sections of the land to the various tribes. And then by lot, they also parceled out within each tribe to various families. And God said, the land stays in your family. Do not Give it away and do not take it from somebody else. Numbers 36, 9, God reiterates that where he says, No inheritance shall be transferred from one tribe to another tribe. For the tribes of the sons of Israel shall each hold to his own inheritance. And even if somebody that got in financial trouble and went into debt and maybe had to sell off their land or, or mortgage it off to try to pay for that debt, every 50 years that land was to be returned to them in the year of Jubilee. God had given it as a sacred trust to each family. And it was to remain in each family. And in the end, that's why Naboth wouldn't sell his property. Because when Ahab came to him, he said, Naboth said, how could I do this thing against God and give away my inheritance of my family? Ahab took it anyway. And so Micah here, he's speaking out against all the Ahabs of his day. Those who were taking others' inheritance, not just in mistreating them by doing so, but also in disobeying God's instruction not to. And I imagine, too, if you think about, again, Micah's background. He's, uh, again, from a small rural town. He grew up in an agricultural area, probably worked on a farm himself. And I, I wonder if Micah actually witnessed this happening around him. Perhaps he knew of families who had been booted off of their land by one of these land barons. Perhaps Micah had experienced it himself. We don't know, but this is the issue that he brings up. This particular sin he focuses attention on as an evil that was taking place in Israel. And so in verses 3 to 5, we see God's response. And it is a response that is consistent with their sin. In verse 3, that word for plan is the same word used for scheme back in verse 1. And the word there in verse 3, calamity or disaster, is the same word that is used in verse 1 that means evil. Essentially what... God is saying here in verse 3 is, you made a plan to do evil against others. I am making a plan to bring evil upon you. And the same thing that these people did to others by kicking them off of their land. God is saying, now I'm kicking you out of yours. Micah says in the day of their disaster, if you look at verse 4, they're going to be surrounded by mockers. And those mockers would literally be lamenting a lamentable lament over them. Um, it's repeated here, this word, to, to, to emphasize the severity of the situation. And in the last half of verse 4, the mockers here, they are taunting the oppressors. What they're doing is basically parroting back the words that the oppressors are now declaring because of the calamity that has fallen upon them. So these mockers are quoting them as they are saying, We are being destroyed. We're completely ruined. All is lost. In verse 
4 and the rest of the verse tells us what they lost. For again, what they had taken would now be taken from them and given to, uh, the NES says, the, the apostate. That is the traitor, the enemy. It's a picture here of the Assyrians when they were going to come in through the north and take the land and also in the south in Judah and take much of the land as well. And I can't help but think these words that the oppressors were now crying out, those were not the same words they heard from the people that they had kicked off of the land unjustly as they were crying out, we're ruined, this is it. Life is over for us. Verse 5 tells us as well, this was a, a serious judgment. It was a permanent judgment. This was not temporary. Notice he says here that in verse 5, it's a picture of when God restores the land of the people of Israel. And as the measuring line is being taken out and the land is being apportioned, as lots are being cast for it, is the picture. That's what happened in Joshua's day. But in that future day, when the land is restored to the people of Israel, these land barons would have no parcel. They would be permanently excluded. This is a, an allusion to eternal judgment. Because when Messiah comes and says, you have no place in this land, what is the alternative? As you can imagine, Micah's audience, how do you think they'd respond to all this? What has been the typical response to these prophets? Micah, thank you. You've pointed out, you know, we just didn't see it. We are so grateful for this ministry you have and calling us to the carpet and pointing out our sin. No, look at verse 6. They're basically saying, Micah, shut up! Don't speak out. That word speak out there, nataf, is this idea of to drip or to, to secrete, to let flow. And when it's regarding speech, it's to let words drip out of your mouth. So these people are telling Micah, they don't want to hear it. And they don't want to hear especially about a judgment that's coming upon them. We're going to look more specifically at that judgment in a, in a minute but and then how they responded to it. But before we look at their response we need to ask ourselves, what, what's the lesson for us here? Again, often as we go through these prophets, we need to reflect on what is it that we can learn from these situations and what's being said. And I'm sure many, if not all of us here, I don't think there's anybody here that's tempted to land grab, that's just acquiring property and, and uh, doing it unjustly. Most of us rent. <laughs> and those of us that, that are buying a home, who really owns it? The bank does, right? We're just trying to pay it, pay it off. And so the question is, what do we have to do with all these evil Mr. Potters? And what Micah has to say here. Well, Pastor Ed and I, were, we were talking about this chapter earlier this week, and we were thinking about, you know, what, what if Micah showed up here one Sunday? Now, apart from the fact, we wonder, what, how did he get in a time machine? But what if he showed up? came in, I mean, wouldn't that be fascinating to meet one of these real prophets who received his message directly from God? Then the thought came to us, though, what would he say to us? <laughs> what sin of ours would he draw attention to? Because God never sends prophets just to say how good things are going, right? They are often sent to warn, to exhort, to instruct. We see that in Revelation when Jesus himself is addressing the seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3. So what would Micah tell us? That we don't have a bunch of land grabbers here. We do have the same desires in our heart that resided in theirs. Look at verse 2 again. 
Notice how it begins. What was at the heart of their land-grabbing ways? Why did they do it? What was it that caused them to throw out the, the poor and innocent, to cast them out into the street? Why did they treat others unjustly? Why did they cruelly force others into servitude? Why did they have to have all of this land? What does it say there? They coveted. They covet their fields. They were coveters. They wanted what was not theirs. They desired what they did not have, and they were willing to sin to get it. And that's what coveting is. It's essentially the belief that, you know, I want what I don't have, or I want more than I have, or I want what he has. We covet more than just money, right? It's not just about money or things, right? We can covet all kinds of things. Remember the 10th commandment? God said, you shall not covet. And then he listed out a few things, didn't he? And it wasn't just your neighbor's property. He talked about your neighbor's house, your neighbor's servants, and your neighbor's wife. You realize immorality is a result of covetous heart. It's not just talking about money or things. Eve coveted the forbidden fruit. In fact, the same words used there for covet. When it says she desired, David coveted Bathsheba. Ahab coveted Naboth's vineyard. Achan coveted the silver and gold in Jericho. Ananias and Sapphira coveted reputation. Simus, Simon the magician coveted having the power to do miracles. And coveting is a powerful and a strong and dangerous desire led many to ruin all those people i just mentioned things didn't turn out so well for them or in even adam's case it didn't turn out so well for us either did it and from the experience in my own life and also as a pastor i would say that coveting or discontentment is the number one struggle for christians for for all people really yes the pride is the root of all evil but its primary tentacle is a covetous heart, one that wants more, or simply wants. And coveting is pervasive. Brothers and sisters, we all covet. We all do. Think about what feeds your wants and desires on a daily basis. Comfort or entertainment, material things, sex, food. And if you're not careful, these things become the vehicles of a discontent heart. Do you long for a beautiful home? Do you long for a better job, a nice car, nicer clothing? Are you always frustrated about struggling, having to struggle to get by or about not having what you want? Do you complain about it, not having what you want? How do you respond when you don't get it? How do you respond when you lose something? You know, we have so much in this rich culture, don't we? So much. And I think we have so much that often we don't realize how much we covet. Because Ahab had plenty of land, didn't he? Plenty. As king, he had a palace in Samaria. He had a palace up in the northern area in Israel. But he wanted more. Yeah, I have lots of land, but I want that land. And it's the same for Micah's land barons. Did they not have already enough land and yet they wanted more? And so, too, we can want more. Why can't I have a more comfortable life? Why can't I be free of my problems? Why can't I have nice vacations? Why can't I be without pain? Lord, why can't I be without pain? This hurts. It's bothering me. Why can't I have better health? Why can't I be well-liked, have more friends? Why can't I be 
more popular or well-known? Why can't I be taller or richer or prettier or stronger? Why can't I... I mean, that's become really the American motto, hasn't it? Now, beloved, don't dismiss me on this. Don't be thinking, come on, Tim, I'm, I'm nothing like these greedy land barons. I have not kicked out a widow of her home and thrown her on the street. I'm pretty satisfied with what I have. Well, let me ask you this. What if you lost everything? Would you still be satisfied? Something to really think about. Are you really satisfied with everything in your life right now? Be honest. Are you content? Truly. I'm not. I'm not. I like comfort. I don't like hobbling around. I don't like it that my wife is struggling with her back pain. There's a lot of things I don't like in my life. And I I struggle in my thoughts with some of these things. That's coveting. Lord, I want... What's better? I don't want what you've given me. Things like lust or anger or depression, those are evidences and fruit of a coveting heart. What is the answer? What is the answer to a covetous heart? Who is the answer? It is Jesus. That's not a pat response. That is The only source of satisfaction, truly. And oftentimes, God will bring these trials and these struggles and even cause us to lose things or experience pain or have trials. Why? Why does He do that? To remind us who it is ultimately we need to be satisfied in and trust in and go to and depend upon. God wants us to be content. He wants us to be satisfied. He wants us to be happy. He really does. But in him not in things not in health or whatever else and that's hard for us it's really hard and so i would just ask for you now brothers and sisters just to take this moment and consider your own heart and ask god to reveal to you any area of discontentment in your life any area where there is coveting going on maybe you've been blind or oblivious to it ask god's spirit now to show that to you. In fact, I want to take a minute, break into the message, and have us go to prayer. And I'm going to give you a moment just to silently talk to the Lord about this. It's so important. I don't want us just to move on to the next point. I want us to stop and take a minute. So I'm going to give you a moment to do that, and then I will pray. And then we will look at the second point. Father, you have given us, you've given me so much, and yet so often I want more. Or I'm not happy with what you have given. Father, I I just pray you would work in each of us. Lord, that we would not be coveters. Father, coveting is what plunged humanity into sin. We know it's a very dangerous desire. Lord, root it out of each of us so that Christ would be our only satisfaction and our only joy, truly. Lord Jesus, we thank You that You died so that we may find true contentment in You, true satisfaction in being forgiven and having a relationship with You. We're so grateful for that. Work in us, Lord, to be content. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, again, as as Micah pointed this out, saying You... You have coveting hearts. 
Many of you covet land and you consume it sinfully, doing sinful things in order to obtain it. And again, Micah's audience at this point in time did not respond in a manner thanking Micah and falling down on their knees in repentance. Really, they didn't want to hear about it. They didn't want to hear about the cruelty of their coveting. And so in verses 6 through 11, we see their response, their rejection of rebuke. And that's our second point today, the rejection of rebuke. Look again at the beginning of verse 6. I mentioned it earlier, where basically they tell Micah, Stop talking! We've had enough! Don't speak anymore! We're done listening to you! And then Micah here responds rather sarcastically. The words that they use when they tell him, Don't speak out, he says, Don't speak out! They spoke out. Use the same word. They're telling him to stop blathering on, and he says that's what they blathered to him. People here have had enough with rebuke. They didn't want to hear it anymore. And what's interesting here is this word, when they say don't speak out, in the Hebrew it's in the second person plural, which means it's you all don't speak out. They weren't just talking to Micah here. They were saying, Micah, you and, and, and Hosea and Isaiah and the sons of the prophets, all you guys who keep pointing out our sin and telling us God is not happy, we're tired of it. Don't speak anymore. No longer prophesy. We're done. They didn't want to hear it from anybody, not just Micah. Isaiah quotes them in Isaiah 30, verse 10, when he says, they, where they're saying, Say to the seers, you must not see visions, and to the prophets, you must not prophesy to us what is right. Speak to us pleasant words. Prophesy illusions. If you remember back in Amos chapter 7, he was run out of town by the high priest, Amaziah. Amaziah told him as he was giving him the boot, Go, you see, or flee away to the land of Judah, and there eat bread, and there do your prophesying. But no longer prophesy at Bethel, for it is the sanctuary of the king. And then he got the right foot of fellowship at that point. But it was a pervasive attitude among the people of Israel. These people didn't want to hear from anybody who was going to confront their sin. The rest of verse 6 is um, difficult to interpret, but Micah is the one speaking here. And what he is saying, basically, is they won't speak about these things. They being his opponents, the people he is confronting. He's basically saying, look, you're telling me not to speak, but nobody else is going to confront your sin. And as a result, he says, the disgrace will not be withdrawn, meaning the judgment is going to come because nobody is going to confront or deal with your sin. And one reason they won't rebuke themselves, we see hinted at in verse 7, is they don't think God would judge them. In fact, Micah asks the people, is it being said among you, is the spirit of the Lord impatient? Are these his doings? And what he's telling us there is the people were were asking these rhetorical questions like, "Is, is God impatient? Is he not slow to anger? Would he do such things to us? It's an allusion to Exodus 34, 6, where God declared of himself, the Lord is slow to anger, abundant in loving kindness. And they were referencing that. This is a veiled reference to that. What they're doing here is they're pulling the God is love card by basically saying, how could such a loving and patient God do this? How could he point out our sin and then send this kind of judgment upon us? God is slow to anger. He's patient, right? That's what they were banking on. But the problem is, 
they remembered Exodus 34, 6, about God being patient and, and full of love, but they forgot verse 7, where it says, God will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. Again, we have to ask ourselves, if, if God didn't respond at all, how would it be loving to all those people that the land barons had swindled and oppressed and harmed? How loving would it have been to them if God stood by and did nothing? And at this point in the middle of verse 7, as the people were wrongly misrepresenting God and His patience and that He would never judge, God in interjection, and He says to them in the middle of verse 7, Do not my words do good to the one walking uprightly? He says, yes, I, I am patient, very patient. Indeed, I bless, but to those who walk uprightly. And then in verses 8 and 9, God shows them through Micah's message how they were not walking uprightly. And again, he goes back to what they were doing against the people. And here he brings up more specific issues, concerns regarding how they were shamefully treating the weak and helpless. Verse 80 describes how they would take the coat off of the back of the one unsuspecting. It's probably a reference to a blanket. Some scholars think here he's talking about the circumstance where a poor man who had a blanket that he would give him pledge in order to say, I'm going to pay off my debt. And God says, if that's all the guy has, don't keep it. Give it back to him. Because the poor needs something to sleep on. Verse 9, God describes how these oppressors evicted women from their secure homes. These are probably widows who've been given a place from, by their husbands. And now these land barons were kicking these women off of their property. And not only that, they were also doing it to the children, to the orphans, the fatherless. He says at the end of verse 9 that they were taking God's splendor. That was the idea of God's blessing. They were taking from the children. So they had a complete disdain for the poor, for the widow, for the orphan, throwing them out on the street. Those who were most vulnerable, they trampled over. Just like Amos. Amos pointed this out in Amos 8.4. He said the very same kinds of things were going on in his day. Because of these shameful acts, God's patience had run out. And just as they had thrown others out into the cold, God says, so now they would be thrown out. We see that in verse 10, where God says to them, arise and go. That word arise is the same word that was used in verse 8, when he said, my people have arisen as an enemy. And so just as they had arisen to oppress, now God says, you need to rise and leave. Get out of here. And again, I wonder, I thought about as I was studying this, those probably were the same words that these oppressors used when they were kicking families off of their land. Arise and go. Get out of here. Now again, how do you think the people responded? Do you think now, oh, now we understand. Now we see Micah. Thank you. Thank you. We weren't listening before, but, but you got us now. These examples really showed us the sin in our hearts, and we want to repent. Is that what happened? No. No. In fact, Micah knows this all too well. Verse 11, he gives a scathing indictment of them, and it's the verse from which I got uh, the unfortunate title of our message today. But he says in verse 11, if a man walking after wind and falsehood had told lies and said, I will speak out to you concerning wine and liquor, he would be spokesman to this people. You know what he's saying there? What Mike is getting at? Again, he uses the word nataf here in the form of a verb when he says to speak out and also a noun for spokesperson. Mike is 
saying that it's not that they mind having someone come and preach to them. The issue to them was the content of that preaching. They didn't want to hear truth. And so they told Micah and the other prophets, stop talking. We're done listening. Enough of this. Go speak to somebody else about their sin. We want someone who will tell us only about the good life, about the life of blessing and and comfort and ease. We want God to speak nice to us and to give us things. I love how the Net Bible translates this. I think they captured it well. Their translation is, If a lying windbag should come and say, I'll promise you blessings of wine and beer, he would be just the right preacher for these people. That's it. That's exactly what Micah is saying. Isaiah quoted the people saying again in Isaiah 30, verse 10. I read it earlier. Let me read it again. You must not prophesy to us what is right. Speak to us pleasant words. Prophesy illusions. It's a word for deceptions. We'd rather be told false things, but but as long as they're good things. About 100 years later, After Micah, God said in Jeremiah 5.30, An appalling and horrible thing has happened in the land. The prophets prophesy falsely, and the priests rule on their own authority. And my people love it so. It's a tragedy. And so too, Micah says, You only want to hear from windbags who will promise you good stuff, even if it's not true. Beloved, I would say if any passage in the old testament that is relevant to our culture today it is this one even though it was 2700 years ago when micah spoke these words they're just as valid today right because what what do most want to hear today in our culture what do they want to hear right they want god's god wants our best life now he wants you to be happy and blessed and prosperous and healthy and that's all he wants for you People don't want to hear about sin and judgment. They don't want to hear about hell, for sure. They don't want to hear about a holy and just God. I listened to a a gospel message not long ago. It was from a mainstream evangelical pastor at a a, um, revival, um, a gospel meeting. And I I heard in the message, it's 45 minutes long, give or take, I heard the word sin once. He didn't reference hell. He didn't even use the word or explain the idea of repentance. He didn't speak of the holiness of God. And and all he talked about in the message was how God loves us and just wants to be with us. Now, please don't misunderstand me. That's the central theme of the gospel. God's love and mercy, isn't it? For certain, God is love. No question about that. That is the, the pinnacle of the message as expressed through Christ's death on the cross as an expression of ultimate love. But his gospel message was a distortion because he didn't talk about sin. He didn't talk about why Jesus went up on that cross and how just how deep that love was for us, that we who had offended and sinned against God, who deserve his punishment, who deserve an eternity apart from him in hell, and yet, despite all that, despite what we've done, Jesus came, became a man, and lived a perfect life and died out of obedience to the Father and love for us. It's a wonderful message. But he didn't give that message. He just spoke about the last part, 
God loves you. He didn't tell them they had offended God. He didn't want them to feel bad. It's just like what the people were saying in Micah's day. Don't talk to us about sin, especially not ours. God's not going to judge us. He's patient. He's loving. We hear fewer messages about sin today because people don't want to hear about sin. They don't want to feel guilty or condemned. And I get that. I don't like feeling guilty. Do you? Really, you do, huh? Nobody said no. <laughs> no, we, we naturally, we don't like that. It's a struggle when we hear things that are things we're not doing right or need to work on. But that doesn't mean that we tell people to shut up when they do point those things out. Definitely when we see it in his word. Punishment is negative, though, people say. Hell is really negative. Just tell me what God, that God wants me to be happy, and, and then that's, that's all I want to hear. Is that not what Paul told Timothy to be aware of in his day? In fact, turn to 2 Timothy 4. It's the last letter that Paul delivered. And in the final part of this letter, in his final words to Timothy, Paul gives in 2 Timothy 4 the motto, really, the, the manifesto of the faithful preacher. Listen to his words in 2 Timothy 4, beginning in verse 1. Paul says to Timothy, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. And then in verse 3, he gives the reason for such a, a strong exhortation to preach the truth. He says, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled. They will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own what? Their own desires. And will turn away from their, their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. Just like Micah said, there's going to be many who they only want to hear from windbags who tickle the ears as the hot air comes out of their mouth. They don't want to be confronted. They don't want to hear of God's judgment. Instead, they want to remove the gavel from God. They want to declaw the Lion of Judah. They want to put air conditioners in hell. Back when I lived in Idaho, I was commuting to work on this uh, main street, and there was this uh, building under construction that I was observing as I was going along. And, and as it was being built, you know, I was kind of wondering what, what was going to be put there. And when they finished the building, it turned out it was a church. But there was no cross anywhere. Again, the Bible doesn't say you have to have crosses in front of the church. But there was no cross anywhere. And they renamed the church to a community center. They had a big playground out in, in the front the window. The whole thing was a big... Yeah, we got a playground out front of our church too. But, but it was a prominent church in the area that changed their name, that really transformed themselves to simply be a, a community center. And I, I wondered about that. And I thought, what, what are they ashamed of here? What are they depending on, really, to change human hearts? What do they think is going to save a soul? Are they more afraid of offending somebody than rescuing them? I saw an article earlier, an article in Christianity Today earlier this week, and it was titled, Yawning at the Word. It's really hard to listen to God when there are other interesting things to think about. 
And in the article, it was from a, a man who had been preaching around at various churches, and he had written it in response to the feedback he had gotten from many people in these churches. And one thing that he was often told was that he read from the Bible too much. <laughs> yeah, he needed to be more relevant to the audience. I guess meaning the Bible isn't that relevant. Al Mohler commented on this article and he said, The author has this, this situation clearly in his sights when he asserts that many congregations expect the preacher to start from some text in the Bible, but then quickly move on to things that really interest us. Then Moeller added, like ourselves. And he's right. Again, many don't want conviction, but entertainment. They don't want guilty feelings, but happy ones. They want stories or humor or nice thoughts, positive messages, pop psychology, inspiring quotes. Beloved, we, we are in scary times. We really are. But before we're too quick to decry... The, uh, these people or those in Micah's day or the folks that built a community center, we need to take heed to ourselves, don't we? Because we've got to remember something very important here. When Paul was speaking to Timothy about those who would turn aside wanting their ears tickled, who was he talking about? He wasn't speaking about those outside the church, but those inside. Because who was Timothy going to be preaching to? He's preaching to... At that time, those in Ephesus. And Paul said, you know what? Someday, people are going to walk away from you because they want their ear tickles. Those who are in your church. And he's right. We're, we're in a constant battle, aren't we? I like what John Piper said in regards to this passage in 2 Timothy. He said, the root problem with those who reject sound teaching and wander off into myths is not intellectual, but emotional and even physical. Paul does not say they won't endure sound teaching because of doctrinal confusion, but because of itching. They leave because they itch. And Timothy is not scratching where they itch. Paul does not say they accumulate teachers to suit their own ideas. He says they accumulate teachers to suit their own passions. Underneath the rejection of truth is always something deeper, namely desires, passions that are being threatened, the itch. So don't just fight for the truth at the intellectual level. Fight at the heart level, the emotion level, the desires, the passions. Pray that God would give you desires that welcome the truth. End quote. He's right. We are in a battle constantly with our fleshly desires. And it is those desires that can lead us to not want to listen anymore about our sin. Desires perhaps maybe like coveting, for example. That's why Jesus often said, you remember when he gave instruction, he who has ears to hear, let him what? Let him hear. Be willing to listen. Beloved, I would ask, do you have ears to hear? Think about that carefully. Yes, we're all here at Calvary Bible Church this morning, listening to a message that I trust is reflecting what he said in his word. But do you pray each time you open the word or hear about the word or read maybe some, a book that's talking about something in scripture do you pray for ears to hear everything not just the good things how attentive are you when the word is preached how much do you desire instruction from the word how much do you desire to know truth 
Has the Bible become boring or irrelevant or less relevant? Let me ask you this. How many sermons do you listen to each week? Is it just the one that you get on Sundays? Or how many books explaining truth from the Bible do you read? How much Bible reading do you do on a daily basis? And more importantly, how much do you meditate on the Word on a daily basis? Well, Tim, I, I don't need all that teaching. I mean, just what I get on Sunday mornings enough. Just to try to apply that one message is difficult. I don't need a bunch more content. I, I just got to focus on that one thing. But that's kind of like saying, you know, I need to exercise and get in shape. So I'm just going to start. I'm going to start on one muscle. <laughs> it's getting a little bigger. It's getting bigger. Ah, look at the tone on that thing. Yep. Right. That presumes that, you know, every other part of my body doesn't need any work. And that's obvious to you. That's not the case. Right. Thanks for not laughing. Um, Right. But I I get the idea that we have to be careful that the Bible just doesn't become a data dump and we get all this content and we hear all these messages, read all these things and do nothing about it because it's only information. I, I understand that. I understand the need to to focus on maybe specific things at a given time in your life to work at applying them. But let me ask you this. Can we ever hear or read or be taught too much of God's word? Honestly, can we? Man shall not live by bread alone, but by what? Every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Jesus said that, quoting Deuteronomy. And yeah, we won't take it all in at one time. It is a process over time, but, but we need to hear from God more than we need to eat. And I understand that the Bible's not always easy to hear. I've been pierced by many a sermon. I've been pierced often in reading the Scripture or reading a book that's talking about a passage or a principle in the Word. The Word of God, by its very nature, is sometimes hard to hear. But the question isn't, what do I want to hear? It's, what do I need to hear? John MacArthur said, the truth of God doesn't tickle your ears, it boxes them. And that's often true. Notice here in 2 Timothy 4, Paul told Timothy not only to encourage and instruct, but to reprove and rebuke. Or in Hebrews 4.12, it says that the word of God cuts into the heart like a knife. And sometimes God doesn't use the full amount of anesthesia. And it hurts. But we have to remember, who is handling that knife? The master surgeon. And he knows how to use it. And his purpose ultimately in plunging that knife within your heart and doing its work is to help you be more like Christ. Jesus is called the Word in John 1. Peter said in John 6 that Jesus had the words of eternal life. Where else will we go? For you have the words of life. And so in the end, really, a longing to know His Word and what He has said in His book is a longing to know Him, its author, because He has written of Himself in His book and His Spirit testifies of Christ through this book. And it is Jesus that we need to see. And His book is what shows, us to, shows Him to us. Father, I would just pray, ask, Lord, that you please would give us not more windbags, Father, but give us those who will graciously 
but boldly speak your truth. God, please never let us become those who want our ears tickled, who when we hear things that, Lord, uh, do cause us to feel guilty or feel bad that, Lord, we would not shun those things, but, but work on those issues you are pointing out. Lord, your word is a great encouragement. And at the same time, it is also, a, Lord, a, a knife that cuts deep within our souls. And we thank you for that cutting, and we thank you that you are the one doing it. And just pray, Lord, we will be receptive, not be like the people in Micah's day who didn't want to hear it, but be those who, Lord, long to hear it. Give us a hunger for your word, more than even the food we eat. God, please work that in our hearts. Make us content people who are satisfied in Christ and Christ alone. In His name we pray. Amen.